Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. So two things before I start. First of all, in Beitena, we do a text study, so it won't be a formal sermon. So I hope that in a moment I'll pass around the sheets. I hope that you will participate in the conversation, that it will not just be a, um, a lecture, so to speak. Um, and I knew that we were going to have quite a few rabbinical students in the room, so I thought, why not study some Gemara? Um, so we're going to learn a little bit of Gemara today, and uh, I'm going to call on the rabbinical students to read all the Aramaic. Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I won the rabbi, the rabbi uh, ordination, and you all get to wait on that a little bit, so I can read the Aramaic. Um, but the other thing that I want to say is that Purim... And, and this, I feel like there are a lot of people who feel this way. Purim is not my favorite holiday. Um, it is a very fun holiday, but I think that because it comes with so many elements that feel frivolous, it is actually a holiday that I have a very hard time connecting to. It feels a little bit too fun, a little bit too silly, and I have a hard time connecting to what the, what the meaning is for, for the holiday. When reading through the Megillah, I feel much more connected than just when I show up in a costume that I've been told to wear by our senior staff. Um, so, uh, though this year it was an easy costume, and so I don't, I, I don't blame them so much. Um, but... I, the thing that, that I have a hard time with, um, and not because it's not sweet, it's extremely sweet and really a wonderful way of giving, is mishloach manot. Matanot le'evyonim, the giving of food and of gifts to the poor, I think is a beautiful practice that probably shouldn't just be done on Purim, but it's good that it's one that's highlighted on Purim. Mishloach manot are something that I've always thought was First of all, it becomes a bit of a contest. I feel that people try to kind of outdo, what, what, what am I going to do for Mishloch Manot that's going to be better than the other person? And it also ends up being something where we just get a lot of stuff. And so earlier this week, I was thinking about how we could, again, put some intentionality behind something that has become maybe removed from the actual mitzvah of giving food to people during this holiday. When we think about Mishloach Manot, there's actually rules around what you're supposed to give for Mishloach Manot. Now, people go nuts and have a lot of creative and wonderful ways of, of fulfilling this mitzvah. And I think that is wonderful. That is not the create... I have a creative brain, but it doesn't go towards Mishloach Manot for whatever reason. But the, the piece that I want us to think about is how can we be giving Mishloach Manot intentionally... And with the understanding that the reason we're giving Mishloach, <laughs> the reason that we're giving Mishloach, well, no, Marshall's having a fight with the, po the posters today. Um, and the reason that we're giving the Mishloach Manot is because we're actually supposed to be feeding our friends. We're supposed to be fulfilling them with the mitzvah of a suda, of some kind of um, celebratory meal during Purim, and that the Mishloach Manot are so actually supposed to help enhance and also fill up your table in case you cannot fill your table on your own. That's a beautiful practice. That is a wonderful way of thinking about this and something that I think more of us need to do um, more often. The second thing, I'll, the, that wasn't second, the, the 500th thing that I'll say about Mishloch Manot before we start is that 
I, I also, because it's so close to Passover, one of the things that I often, and I'm sure others of you struggle with this as well, is how can I receive so many Mishloach Manot and know what to do with all of this chametz before I have to get rid of it? And so how can we be giving in such a way that people are going to actually use the food we give them, use the Mishloach Manot we're going to give them, because again, that's the mitzvah, they're supposed to use it, and not just acquire a bunch of stuff that then, when it comes to Passover, they're probably going to toss away. right? So where's, where's the balance between making sure that we're fulfilling this mitzvah of satiating our friends and, and also making it fun and joyful. And then also, how do we think about the longevity, so to speak, of the Mishloach Manot, such that if it's something that's going to be keeping your friends satiated beyond just the day of Passover, uh, Purim, sorry, how can it not become a burden and then potentially wasteful for Pesach? Everybody see where I'm coming from? Yeah, okay. Anybody have any questions about that or comments about that first? What's your favorite holiday? <laughs> that is off topic. Um, my favorite holiday is Pesach. Yeah. We're going to get there. Oh, very good. That's going to be the last thing that we talk about today. But yes. Okay, so take one and pass it around. As I mentioned, we're going to be looking at Gemara, as, at the Talmud, which is a rabbinic source that was written in the 500s and 600s. But before we do that, we are going to look at the Megillah, because the Megillah actually tells us that you are supposed to give Mishloach Manot. So I'm just going to read that text very quickly. <clears throat> the same days on which the Jews enjoyed relief from their foes and the same month which had been transformed for them from one of grief and mourning to one of festive joy. This is the second to last chapter of Megillah. They were to observe them as days of feasting and merrymaking. That's where the idea of a suda, of a celebratory feast comes from. And as an occasion for sending gifts, Mishloach Manot, to one another, and presents, matan, per, uh, presents to the poor, Matanot Le Evionim. So there are four mitzvot for Purim. One of them is Mishloach Manot. One of them is Matanot Le Evionim. One of them is reading the Megillah. And what's the fourth one? Seuda. Right. Making sure, so all of these go into, go into, which actually I guess is, is coupled with Tani Dester, but all of these come together around this idea of Matanola Evionim and Mishloach Mano. Okay, now we're going to get into the Gemara. For those of you who have not studied Gemara before or Talmud before, which are exactly the same things, it's just the Gemara is the name inside the book, the Talmud is the name of the book. The Gemara is a text that tells stories by rabbis so that we can understand something more deep in the laws of our tradition. So that's what we're about to do. We're about to name a bunch of rabbis. They were all men, sorry. But we're about to name a bunch of rabbis and something that happened in their lives that's going to help us understand why we do the mitzvah of Mishloach Manot. I'm only going to read in Hebrew. I might throw a few phrases in here in Aramaic, but because I assume that even our rabbinical students don't um, have fluency in Aramaic, I'm just going to I'm going to stick to an, uh, a language that we all can understand. You have fulfilled two mitzvot through us, our teacher. So this is coming in the middle of a page, right? We're, we're being dropped into the middle of something. But the, what we're going to talk about here is the mitzvah of sending portions to one another. Again, mishloach manot. And the mitzvah of gifts to the poor, matanot le'evyonim. Okay. 
By the way, the way that this is written, this is copied from Safaria. If something is in the bold, it is the actual text. If something is not bolded, it's commentary. So I might skip over some of the non-bolded pieces just for time's sake. The Gemara relates. So this is where the rabbis are going to teach us something. Rabbah, guy one, sent Purim portions from the house of the Exilarch to Mare Bar Mar in the hands of Abaye. So Rabbah, through Abaye, sent Mishloach Manot to this guy, Mare Bar Mar. Everybody with me so far? You can picture that? Okay. His nephew and student. The Purim portions, Mishloach Manot, consisted of a sack full of dates and a cup full of roasted flour. And it gives you the, what the Aramaic for those two things are. Abaye said to him, now, Mare will say... Even if a farmer, this was kind of like one of their sayings back in the day, even if a farmer becomes the king, the basket does not descend from his neck. If any of you can tell me what that means, I'd be very excited to, to understand that. So I'm just going to gloss over it. Rabbah was named the head of the yeshiva in Pumbadita, which means that he was a high-ranking official with lots of money. And nevertheless, he continued to send very plain gifts because he was impoverished. So you might think that he was this high-ranking official with a lot of money, A, because I just told you that, and B, because you would think that someone who's the head of a, of a yeshiva, of a rabbinical school, might be wealthy. But I'll let you in on a little bit of a secret. No rabbi ever became wealthy by just being a rabbi, let alone being the dean of a rabbinical school. Okay? So what this is saying is that Rabbah was the dean of this rabbinical school, and everyone thought that he would be wealthy because he was a man who held himself in very high regard. But actually, he didn't have a lot of money. And so he sent very plain gifts because that was what he could afford. That's what he could do. By the way, please stop me if you have any questions or comments. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going a little bit here. But yeah. One hundred percent. Yes, for sure. So we're going to get to that in, all, in just a second as well. What Angela is bringing up is that you, which is why actually I think that the that Steinsaltz, who's the commentator in this particular Gemara, is saying to us, yeah, he was the head of this, let's call it a rabbinical school. And you might think, therefore, that he might give really beautiful gifts, but he gave, he gave less than, than he probably could have, and he gave very simple gifts because he wanted other people to also know that simple gifts is fine. Simple gifts is actually probably better than making it something uh, uh, extravagant and, and over the top. So I think Angela's right that even if he didn't have a lot of money, that probably the intention behind it had less to do with how much money he had and more to do with kind of leveling the playing field. Where's the other place in our tradition where the, the playing field is leveled no matter how much money you have? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, great, which is in association to what? Death. Death. Everybody, everybody, and also machatzida ha shekel, but that's something different. But the idea of people being buried in shrouds comes from the fact that Rabban Gamliel, who was also this well-named, well-known rabbi, decided, no, I'm going to show what it would look like to die a humble, poor man, and everybody, when they die, is going to be buried in the same thing. So in Jewish tradition, you're not buried in extravagant clothes, your hair is not done, your makeup is not done, you're buried in shrouds just like every other person around you, okay? So 
Marei Barmar sent back to him, remember that he's, Marei Barmar was the one who received the Mishloach Manot, he sent back to him, he sent back to Rabbah a sack full of ginger and a cup full of long peppers. So again, it, it possibly was more in terms of monetary value, but again, pretty, pretty basic. A much more expensive gift, Rav Steinzaltz wants us to know. Abaye said to him, the master, Rabbah, will now say, I sent him sweet items and he sent me pungent ones. Rabbah's going to receive this gift back and say, wait a second, I sent you all this, these really delicious chocolates. I'm, I'm, making, I'm, I'm making it into modern day language. These really delicious chocolates that are so sweet and you could eat at any time. And he sent me back hot sauce. Right? So he's going to think to himself, wow, it might be really expensive and really wonderful, but it's not something that I'm necessarily going to be able to enjoy in the same way as the gifts that I sent to him. Everybody with me? Okay. In describing that same incident, Abaye said, when I left the house of the master, Rabbah, to go to Mare Barmar, I was already satiated. So when I went on my journey, I had already eaten. I didn't need to eat anymore. But when I arrived there at Marais Barmar's house, they served me 60 plates of 60 kinds of cooked dishes. Just sounds like going to a Jewish mother's home. And I ate 60 portions from each of them. So remember that in the Gemara, they're using numbers not in the same way that we use numbers. It probably wasn't 60. It was probably more like four, right? But, but, they're, but they're trying to exaggerate. And so why they're saying 60 is so they can exaggerate for you. What, so what's happening here is Abaye is saying, I was full. I'm sure this has happened to people before. Um, I know this has happened to my brother before when he was on, uh, on tour with his a cappella group. You can ask him that story during Kiddush. Um, but they, do you remember what I'm talking about? No. Oh, okay. Great. Ask me during Kiddush. Um, but when you go to someone's house already full and they serve you food, your first instinct is I have to be polite and I have to eat. Right. So what what he is explaining here is that he showed up to this house already full, but because it was the Suda for Purim, they served a lot of different kinds of foods. And so Abaye ate all these kinds of foods and ate much more than he needed to of these foods. The last dish was called pot roast. Now, this is very funny because, of course, that's not what it was called. Um, but that's what, that's what they're translating as. And I was still so hungry that I wanted to chew the plate afterward. He doesn't mean that he was so hungry because he had already just told us he was satiated. It's not that he was so hungry. It's that he was, he was enjoying it so much that he wanted to continue eating it, but he had gotten to the bottom of the plate. So we're seeing a certain kind of gluttony here, right? Which is coming at the end of this description of Mishloach Manot. And I promise it's going to get back to why those two things are happening in this, in this same story. In continuation, Abaye said, this explains the folks saying that people say the poor man is hungry and does not know it. Right? I actually don't think it's such a folk saying. I think it's really that that is something that we know from hunger. Right? When people live in a place where they've experienced hunger, what they teach you when you go into those places and you're feeding people is don't feed them all the food they can possibly eat. Their stomach won't be able to take it. You actually have to feed them very small amounts, even if they could eat much more, even if they think their eyes are obviously bigger than their stomach at that point because they're starving. But their stomach, because they're starving, is so small that if they eat too much, they'll actually, they could die, but they'll overfill themselves. There are many devastating stories of this post-Holocaust that people left after the Holocaust 
their stomachs had gotten so small, but they were so hungry that they ate so much and actually ended up killing themselves um, by accident, obviously, um, by, by overfilling them, their stomachs. So not to make it uh, too dramatic in this moment, but that's, that's what he's saying here, right? That he was, he was ready to, um, he, like a poor person, was not, was not aware of that. And I actually wouldn't say poor, I would say hungry. He, like a hungry person, was not aware of the fact that, that he actually could have eaten more. Alternatively, there's another appropriate popular expression, room in the stomach for sweets can always be found. When I read this in the Gemara, I was like, oh, that's where this comes from? I thought it was just a thing that, that you know, aunts say to their nieces and nephews when they want to serve them dessert, that you always have room in your stomach for dessert. I love that the rabbis in Judaism were the ones who came up with that. I think that's very cute. Let's just keep going, unless there's questions or comments. Okay. The Gemara relates that Abaye bar Avin and Rabbi Hanina bar Avin, now, uh, hold on, would exchange their meals with each other to fulfill their obligation of sending portions on, on Purim. These are, this is a different Abaye, I know, very confusing, and Rabbi Hanina bar Avin is now a new character to our story who we haven't yet met. But what the Gemara is about to tell us is that these two people would just exchange gifts with one another, right? There's not an obligation to send to all 400 members of your congregation. That is something that the leadership here at Beth Am does, right? To all 900 and some odd families, we send Mishloach Manah. But it, the obligation is not to send to hundreds of people. The obligation is just to send to a friend to make sure that they have food for, um, for their Suda. Rava said, a person is obligated, this is going to bring in a different aspect of Purim that I'm sure most of you are aware of, a person is obligated to become intoxicated with wine on Purim until he is so intoxicated that he does not know how to distinguish between how cursed Haman is and how blessed is Mordechai. We're not going to get into this. It's a very problematic mitzvah, especially for people who are dealing with alcoholism, of course. Um, but there's a very problematic uh, uh, mitzvah and one that... Um, people take too far, right? So you could have two glasses of wine, not be, you know, out of your mind intoxicated and still have a hard time listening to the Megillah. That's what they mean. They mean like get kind of tipsy. They don't mean go crazy. But people unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess if you're able to be in control of yourself, go crazy often because they think it's a mitzvah to do so. So just that, that's my soapbox. Take it as you will. We're not going to get into that mitzvah today. The Gemara relates that Rabbah and Rabbi Zera prepared a Purim feast with each other, and they became intoxicated to the point that Rabbah arose and slaughtered Rabbi Zera. Okay, so this is, this is where, I'm glad you're all laughing. This is where it goes nuts, right? Like, oh, you took a mitzvah, and you took the mitzvah too far. The next day, when he became sober and realized what he had done, Rabbi asked God for mercy and revived him. These are, these are the best types of Gemara stories. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, great, he's back in life, right? Uh, like the Gemara can do these things because it probably isn't a real story. Um, and so when he, when he dies, he realizes what he did wrong. He says, God, sorry, I really didn't mean to do that. I was a little bit too drunk last night. And then God revives him. Lots of problems with this story, but okay. Um, lovely that he came back to life. The next year, Rabbi said to Rabbi Zera, let the master come and let us prepare the Purim feast with each other. Right? So uh, what I learned from this moment, they, they are exclaiming, is that instead of going crazy and doing something for each other, let's just come together and do this together. 
let's have a way of being able to celebrate this together. Um, he said to him, miracles do not happen each and every hour, and I do not want to undergo that experience again. <laughs> I don't I don't want to die again. Well, that's, that's a good thing. So the reason the story ends this way is because I think what we're trying to understand from Mishloach Manot and then also with this, with this addition of what a Purim Suda should be is that it should not be and it does not need to be over the top. It just needs to be a way of satiating someone, right? We had two, two examples of over-satiation, one with intoxication, the other one with food. Both led to, well, one a little bit more extreme than the other, but both led to not so great outcomes. And what we're trying to understand is just, just giving Mishloach Manot, just giving, and we're going to talk about what that, those gifts need to be, but just giving Mishloach Manot plainly to make sure that someone has what to eat. You do not need to make sure that they go above and beyond. You just need to make sure that they are fed. So the Shulchan Aruch, which is our main body of Jewish law, of Jewish law text, does not specify whether the food should, be, food should be cooked either. So this is to Angela's question. One must send to their fellow two portions of meat or foodstuffs, as it says in Esther, and send portions to his fellow. So what does it mean, portions? It means that there needs to be two separate, two different things. Two portions to one man is the obligation. One person is what they mean. Sorry, I didn't bring the, I didn't, I didn't fix the translation. And anyone who sends more to their fellow is praiseworthy. So just one other person is fine. It doesn't need to be to everybody. The Magen Avraham, who's a commentator on the Orachaim, on the, um, on the Shulchan Aruch, says that for clarification, the portions should be cooked or ready to eat. The overall majority of post scheme rule similarly. So the majority of rabbis say the same thing, that they need to be ready to eat. Don't send someone again, of, a, again, a can of garbanzo beans. Though actually, I would really appreciate that. So if anybody wants to give me a can of, I really like garbanzo beans. Um, but what they're basically saying is that the food needs to be ready to eat, right? So actually, garbanzo beans is actually a, a bad example. Do not bring somebody, or not, do not send somebody raw salmon right? Give someone salmon that's already cooked or give someone something that's ready to eat. It has to be ready to eat. So garbanzo beans is fine and feel free to give anybody garbanzo beans. Um, so the reason for the difference in, in opinion may depend on the purpose of the mitzvah. Is Mishloach Manot primarily meant to be sent as a part of the Purim Suda or is it purposefully aimed at creating strengthening feelings of friendship and happiness? This is such an important point, right? Is this for us to be, to feel like, wow, it's, it's like for those of you who are on social media, it's like when you post something, wow, I got this many likes, which by the way is terrible for your mental health, but I got this many likes or on my birthday, I had this many people respond and say happy birthday to me. Is that the idea of Mishloach Manot, right? The amount that you receive, or is it the fact that you received anything such that you could eat? Right, a really important thing to decide and to understand. And if you are someone who can do it for both reasons, hareza meshubach. That's wonderful. Right, right, exactly. The idea that you can that you can feel those feelings of connection, whether it's community or friends, with the other people who are either giving or receiving the mishloach manam. The Trumat Hadeshin holds that the chief purpose is to make sure each and everyone in the community has proper food to eat at the suda. Most post-scheme, those who are writing, uh, writing halakha, writing Jewish law, deem mishloach manot to be a sign of friendship and joy between people, just like Angela just said. The Aruch HaShulchan proves that if the portions were meant for the Suda, then one would not fulfill the obligation by sending mishloach manot to the rich because they would already have food, 
right? So you would only then send to the poor, but we specifically have two meets vote. One, to give food to the poor. One, to give food to your friends, no matter their, their socioeconomic standing. However, one does fulfill the mitzvah by sending to the rich since it's not meant for the meal, but rather to increase simcha. Okay, this is the last little piece here, and then, and then we'll go into Musaf. The nafkamina, the, the general takeaway between the two opinions would be, what type of food do you choose to send? Pre-cooked dishes or baked goods would probably be fit for the meal, while nosh and canned foods, <laughs> garbanzo beans, would be put aside for later. Okay, so what we're getting at here, what we're trying to understand here, or what we're trying to, to learn here to be able to put into practice, is this idea the mishloach manot are a way for us to create connection, are a way for us to feed other people in our community, but it does not have to be something that, first of all, breaks the bank. It also does not have to be something that you are the only person who's going to be able to provide for them. So when you give Mishloach Manot, it must be that something is cooked and ready to eat and that something and the other thing can be something that is that is in need of preparation. Very often when we talk about what to give from Mishloach Manot, people say that it should be something fresh and something cooked. So a lot of people will get like a homentashen and a clementine. That's, I'm happy to give statistics after Purim and tell you how many clementines and uh, homentashen I got. But it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful Mishloach Manot gift because it's exactly right. Both able to eat, one fresh one that can be saved. So my, um, this isn't really a blessing, but my charge to all of you would be that when you are creating Mishloach Manot this year, whether for one person or for many people, I challenge you to think about what are you giving? Why are you giving it? And how is it going to be something that brings both joy and also satiation to the people who you are giving to? Do you have something to say, Ma? Oh, I just yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. There's also um, a, a law that even if you're poor, you exchange gifts with another poor person. Yes, right? so yes, exactly. Done it for yourself, but there's something about the giving. 100%. I think that's what Angela was getting to, too, right? That it's not just about the stuff that you give, but it's also about seeing the person while, they, while you give it to them, being able to say Chag Sameach. It's sometimes why people give out Mishloch Manot actually at Purim, right, while they come to hear the Megillah because they want to be able to see the person, not just drop it at their front door, but to be able to really have that moment of interaction. So that's exactly right. I also want to just say, I, I know that I, some of what I said was very tongue-in-cheek. Any kind of Mishloch Manot that you give, if you're able to give, is is beautiful and powerful and fulfilling the mitzvah, right? So you do not have to feel like there is some kind of standard. You do not have to feel that there is some kind of obligation of a certain, of a certain grandeur to the Mishloch Manot. It's about the giving. It's about how you give. And it's about making sure that someone feels like you thought about them and, and what they're going to be able to bring to their suda, which is supposed to be all about enjoying food, but also experiencing joy together. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.